You're listening to episode 169 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. It is the 22nd of October 2021 here in Norwich, and on the show today, we have Singapore writer Nuralia Nurasid talking with Sally Ann Lomas. Nuralia is a writer, researcher, and educator with a PhD in English literature and creative writing. Her debut novel, The Gatekeeper, won the Epigram Books Fiction Prize in 2016 and the Best Fiction title for the Singapore Book Awards in 2018. She's talking with Sally Ann, who is a writer, artist, and filmmaker, and whose first novel, Live Like Your Head's on Fire, came out earlier this year. I've read it, and it is very good. They talk about growing up in Singapore, Nuralia's inspiration behind her early stories, how gaming has influenced her writing, and how The Gatekeeper examines real-world issues within its fantasy context. It's a great conversation, taking in all sorts from cultural aspects of Singapore through to how flexible the fantasy genre can really be. So I'm going to hand over straight away to Sally-Anne, talking with Nuralia. So Nuralia, it's really lovely to be talking to you today. And first of all, let me say how very much I enjoyed reading your book, The Gatekeeper. Um, And I'm really looking forward to being able to find out more about you as a writer um, and to get to know you a little bit. But to start with, um, for those of us that don't know Singapore particularly well, I wonder if you could just introduce us, just say a little bit about um, Singapore as a country and what it was like for you Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm really glad to to be here on this podcast. Right, about Singapore. (laughs) So where do I I begin? Sometimes with countries where you've lived, when you've lived there all your life, you you would think that it's easy to talk about it to someone else. But then it's it's so difficult then to... We find that... I find that it's too difficult to contextualise, you know, like... um, the country in a manner that is that is easy and well packaged for another person but I'll try so to start um, it's a small country so you can get from the east coast to the west coast in under an hour by car you can try walking it would take about six hours and 20 minutes or so. So, and people have done that. So we are small and we can get to places quickly, um, quickly enough. Of course, I think if there's one thing that is significant about Singapore for me is um, because I like the the nature reserves. I like um, greenery and I've always grown up with stories uh, that my, my mother and father used to tell me about living in villages and so on, and um, the f- how my mother would, my mother likes to, to talk about her life in the village, and she also, and there's something absolutely wonderful where uh, she does this wonderful thing where you can walk anywhere at any park, and she's always able to tell you um, what tree this is, and even if it's just a tree that you see on the road, by the road, she's able to go like this one. This particular tree has this quality, this particular medicinal quality. You can eat the shoots, you can do this, and it. And I think it was it's because of that that to me, I think if I were to think about Singapore, of course there is the the very, um, you know, the the very urban. The very urban spaces of it, and 
the the ones you know the the very beautiful skyline that is that has now become iconic with you know the gardens by the bay and and then of course our well known um, Changi Airport but for me I always think about the parks about how one thing about living in Singapore is that. They, you know, the government tries to consciously put a big park um, in all of the heartlands. So our neighborhoods or our es- housing estates, the areas in it in which we live, we uh, they are called the heartlands. So, yeah, so that is where I, I grew up, which is in the heartlands where all of the public housings, uh, all of the public housing blocks are, and so on. So I would think of the parks, you know, and also that big. Mm-hmm central part of Singapore, the nature reserves. Singapore is um, ethnically diverse. So however, we do have um, a majority, a big Chinese community. So that is the majority, the majority of our ethnic makeup is Chinese. Um, I'm Malay. So I'm one of the the communities that make up the the various minority groups. So we have um, different Indian communities making up the, uh, making yeah, so we have different Indian, various Indian communities. We also have the Eurasian community as well as a growing, um, a growing migrant community as well. So it is very ethnically diverse. It's also religiously diverse. So that is, and that is another thing about Singapore. And when it comes to language, English is our main language of instruction so we learn it in school so all of the our all of our school subjects are are taught in English and of Mm -hmm. course um, all of us have to be bilingual in some way so we always have we also have to learn our mother tongues and so on so and I have to say that I do think quite significantly in in Malay so there's Mm -hmm. always sometimes I would think in Malay so it takes a when it when you are that bilingual sometimes there would be moments that you have to pause and go like hmm, this is the right word what is that word that I'm looking for and and when you're writing do you think first in Malay or first in English writing is interesting um, I speak in Malay primarily to my parents yeah for to my brothers I would speak in a mix of Malay and English but when it comes to writing I would write I would think in English in order to to write in English. Yeah, I wish to to be able to write better in mm-hmm. Malay. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I I wish to be able to write better, but I think I have no idea how it got to that point. I think I just engage far more in English language writing, and that's why I write in English and think about my writing in English as well. Yeah. So I'm interested, you talked about your mother living in villages and her knowledge of nature and your own love of it. But you, did you grow up in an urban setting? I grew up in an urban setting. Um, in fact, I grew up in um, a town. I grew up in a town called Ishun. So that's in the north uh, of Singapore. Um, and the funny thing is that Ishun is called the Boogie Town. Uh, it's almost, almost the Boogie Town of Singapore. I think because of uh, the spate of, I have no idea, crime, um, large caterpillars, like really, really large caterpillars that people found once and so on. Not sure how Ishun got that reputation. But, you know, to be honest, it's a very comfortable town, very green, but it's very urban. 
I think in Singapore, there's just far more urban spaces than there are green spaces. And one of the things that we are constantly talking, that we talk about, we do talk about in the Singaporean, um, in our communities, is that we are losing these green spaces. That Singapore mm. is losing a lot mm. of this, of its green spaces to rapid urbanization. Mm. If there's one thing about Singapore as well, is that there's always construction going on. There's always right. some kind of improvements um, happening somewhere. I always think of Singapore as a very rich country, and I think it is mm. one of the richest countries per capita of income in in the world um mm. but I, I i you know from reading about you i understand that that you didn't actually come from a wealthy background am, am i right there yeah i don't i that's true <laughs> that is true i think when it comes to when people think of Singapore, they do think of that nice skyline, that movie Crazy Rich mm-hmm. Asians have added to to the um, to the image of Singapore being li- really rich uh, as well. However, there are also parts of uh, of Singaporean society. There are people who fall through the who has fallen through the cracks. There are people. There is no official poverty line in Singapore, and that's something that um, that various institutions as well as scholars have uh, called to question uh, Mm -hmm. a a need for whether there's a need for one and why there's a need for one. But there are people living below. If there is a poverty line, there are people living below the poverty line. And growing up, I I was one of those. I was one of those. Uh, I grew up in such a household, what we call here a low-income household, because my mother was the only one working and mm-hmm. supporting all five of us Yeah, wow. on very little pay. Now, even though we're not rich in any way, my parents do believe books to be important. They do see education as something really important. Mm-hmm. And if they can't buy us books, there's always the library. So I always, um, I would always remember our, we would have weekly visits to the library. So that would be myself and my two younger brothers. And we would always be, my, my dad was pretty strict about it. Every weekend, we would go to the library and all of you must borrow four books. So two books, um, two fiction books and two non-fiction books. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. every evening, um, as a whole, we as a whole family would watch documentaries. So that could be nature documentaries. My parents love um, love documentaries about astronomy, to do mm-hmm. with astronomy. And I personally love history documentaries. So that has that is also a way uh, a way in which you know we mm-hmm. got to know a little bit more about the world and to read. So a lot of encouragement on reading and education. Um, mm-hmm. And when did you, how old were you when you sort of thought about being a writer? Is, is it something that, that's been with you for a long time or did it come later? The funny thing is that I never thought about becoming a writer when I was young. I remembered a few things that I wanted to be when I was young. I wanted to be an astronaut, a <laughs> zoologist, an archaeologist, a policewoman, um, yeah, so a vet as well. So there are various things. I really also want. I really wanted to be a swashbuckling princess at one point. A swashbuckling princess. That's that's <laughs> not great. just any princess. A no. swashbuckling one. Yes, but I think writing was just something that I did. Um, it was just something that that I did. Um, 
to tell the stories that I wanted to mm-hmm. tell. I was when I was young. I remembered that my my dad would buy me nature study books. So these nature study books, uh, I'm not too sure if they they have it in the UK, where it's lined on one side and blank on the other side. And as a kid, we always used those nature study books for science class, where our teachers would get us to pluck leaves and get leaf shade, you not know, shade over the leaves and and describe it, and so on. So I would get, I would buy, my dad would buy those books for me, and I would write stories in them and illustrate on the uh-huh. on the blank pages. Um, I remembered, for some reason, I was always retelling fairy tales, you know, be- uh, because I was just not happy with the way, uh, with the way so many of them end, you know, ended. Like for example, I rewrote the Frog Prince. I am definitely <laughs> terrified of frogs, so I just needed to to rewrite that. And how, I, how did you rewrite it? What was your version? <laughs> In my version, I remember one, and I was very proud of it because I was about six when I wrote it, and I showed it to my dad. Um, and it was, I changed the frogs to earthworms, as if earthworms were better than frogs. And yeah, and what happened was at the end, um, there was, I remember in the story that there was a love triangle. So between that earthworm prince and the princess and another earthworm for some reason. And then at the end, everybody, everyone in the story just became, was just turned into earthworms for inexplicable reasons. And that was how the story ended. Yeah. I rewrote The Little Mermaid, of course, because I never liked the the way it ended with with her turning to sea foam. And I rewrote Tambalina as well. Not too sure why I rewrote it too. To be honest, but I remember rewriting Tambalina. Well, that's great, and and obviously your your interest in fairy tales to an extent, you know, has has played out into your adult writing. Um, yeah, looking it has. at mythology and um, fairy tales. So so it's funny how these things start early in our lives. The kinds of things that interest us. Why do you think that you write? Why did you become a writer? When did you think this this is what I'm going to do? And when did you start to take your writing seriously? And um, and and um, and why do you think that that came about? I was. I remember being particularly prolific in secondary school. So I was writing a lot of my own um, because mm-hmm. at at that age, when I was in secondary school as a teenager, um, romance novel. Romance novels were like all the rage among among my peers. So, but there was as much as it is exciting and nice to to read. I w- I remembered that there were some elements that were missing. Like for example, you know the the female protagonist I felt could be a little bit more swashbuckling. <laughs> as always, uh, she could have a little bit more agency. Um, I wasn't too interested in in the male protagonist all that much, and so on. So I set out to write um, stories of my own, and I was in secondary school. I was also really influenced by video games, so I would want to write stories very similar to the ones that mm-hmm. um, that I I found or experienced in video games. So I started. So I think that was when I started to write novels. I mm-hmm. still have my juvenilia, by wow. the way, wow, <laughs> written in great. exercise books secretly because my parents were very concerned or they were not particularly happy that I was writing stories. Um, 
but I never thought too much about it until I was in university. Mm-hmm. And that was when I saw what stories can do. And um, yeah, my professors were really en- encouraging as well. And mm-hmm. I always liked that for some of their classes, they actually allowed allowed me to, to express my essay ideas in um, creative writing. And that yeah. was when I saw... What uh, and that was when I saw what you can do with writing, how you can take certain theses and uh, and ideas and concepts and explore them mm-hmm. in a creative way. And I think mm-hmm. that was when I really started to think about, perhaps yes, this is what I I would want to do, and something that I could do. Yeah. And and now as a, as a writer, um, have you do you? I mean, it's a funny thing being a writer, isn't it? Because it's 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 hard work. It's not particularly financially rewarding. It's um, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of struggle involved as well as joy. But um, so so now that you are a published writer, do, have you thought about what what it is that, that that burns inside that makes you want to be a writer? I think now at this point in my writing life, I. There are still complexities. I think what drives me is that there are still complexities that I see in society and mm-hmm. the world around us. Um, there are still some aspects of the community experience and my experiences as, as a Malay woman in Singapore and experiences of others that I see um, who are in or have grown up in very similar circumstances um, as, as I have. And I would... And I would like to tell stories about that. I would like to express that. But but then at the same time, um, I also see today, I see stories as a way of unpacking, you know, writing. I see writing as a way of unpacking all those complexities, all of those experiences and, and understanding them and also as well as expressing them. So that's one. However, I do find that you know, that approach to writing does have its struggles mm-hmm. um, because in a way, sometimes you would be, you would think so hard about how to express, how to express them, how to write about them, that uh, that sometimes I find that it makes the writing slower. It makes the process oh. far slower. Um, recently, I also find that one of the reasons uh, why and the reasons why I want to write is because sometimes they are just characters. Characters would would come to, I I I don't know how to to say it without sounding cheesy, but they would <laughs> they would come to me, or, or they would uh, manifest in some ways, and, and and over time, they they start to become a little bit more fleshed out. Their stories start to become more apparent, and then daydreaming. Uh, plays a big part in in my writing as well. I need that time to daydream, yeah. Before, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm getting a picture mm. here where, on the one hand, there's the the daydreaming schoolgirl with her swashbuckling princesses, um, mm. and the, those characters that have got they've got to be given their stories. And then on the other hand, there is a wider political context um, where there are things that are important to you. That, that mm. you would like to discuss and examine uh, through your creative fiction. So, 
This seems like a good point to introduce your debut novel, The Gatekeeper, um, which is a fantasy novel blending Greek mythology and Southeast Asian cultural elements. And it's set in the high-tech city of Manticura. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, that's correct. Manticura. And it tells the story of a young Medusa, Rhea, who struggles to protect herself and her community of outcasts marginalised by human colonial settlers. So um, it's a very exciting um, and um, in many ways disturbing story. And I wonder just to give us a taste of it, if you would, would just read us a little bit from The Gatekeeper so people who perhaps haven't read it could, could have a sense of your writing. Okay. Um, I will be reading um, a few paragraphs from the moment where Ria and her sister Barani um, comes upon and enters the, the settlement, the underground settlement, Nelroot, uh, in which they would actually come to live for the next few decades. Yeah. The settlement was bigger than Ria had thought. It sat within a great stone bowl with sides that rose up like an arena, surrounded within the cave by natural pillars of joining stalagmites and stalactites. She could not spot the point of a roof anywhere, just stretches of dirty grey walls, the reds, blues and greens of painted corrugated metal and tarp covers radiating out from an obscured centre. The homes made of these walls did not seem to have been built according to any design or with any planning in mind. They seem to have begun as boxes, some alone on ground level, others stacked up to three stories high and all pressed into each other so closely that one could stretch out from the window of one's own home and pick food off the table next door. Around these basic structures, the residents had built shacks, extra rooms and fences using bits of spare materials, more often improvising one item for another, such as a door turned sideways, made into a low wall and supplemented with wooden beams that supported a roof made out of tarp. So that a sort of veranda was formed. The extra bits climbed and snaked around each other, merging in some parts, and only accessible on others by rickety staircases and makeshift leathers. Maneuvering individual clusters of homes was akin to scaling a vertical maze. Between them were narrow alleys, either of rocky ground or furrows for drainage, some of which were wide enough to need bridges of plywood boards at intervals. The compact city of dwellings possessed no discernible beginning or end no distinguishable boundaries. Rhea wondered if finding her way around was the same as moving through a jungle, finding landmarks in unusual trees or tracing the paths in disturbed vegetation. There was no sky to navigate with, to guess at time, and yet everything was also visible. Rhea squinted up at the two bright bursts of white light. Generator, she heard someone say in a deep rumble, one of the voices from before. Thank you. That's lovely. Well, that, that introduces us to this underground community where Rhea and her sister live. Um, and in fact, it is the community which she becomes the gatekeeper of. To, yeah. Of course, um, to the gatekeeper too. Um, 
one of the things that so, so Ria is a Medusa she has snakes for hair and her sister too and she is uh, and she has the power to turn people to stone um, I found her a fascinating character and I was really interested in you choosing to make your heroine a Medusa um, and I was really interested as to what 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 drew you to 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 using a Medusa as your as your main protagonist. I have to admit that my introduction to the Medusa as a figure was not through um, the was not through literature. It was not through books or you know the the Greek uh, verses that we we know to uh, that we know of her you know, that we know today um, from which she originates. Rather, when I, I remembered distinctly that when I was 15 and, you know, very into video games at an age, and there was this game called Heroes of Might and Magic 3, and one of the opening scenes had um, a Medusa a, who is in this game um, um, a fantasy soldier unit, a fantasy fighting unit. And I remember seeing that and wanting to write a story about that character. I, I don't know who she is at that time. I don't know. Um, I didn't even know at that age that this is a, a that the figure of the Medusa is very significant in, in Greek and Roman mythology. For me, it just started with that character and mm -hmm. just wanting mm -hmm. to, to... For me, that was... Um, to me, the Medusa figure in that game was what a heroine should be. Aha. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> yeah. This, this was a proper swashbuckling heroine with power. Yeah. So when I was younger, I actually had um, a much earlier story... Uh, featuring a Medusa and her sister because I did not see the figure as a as a singular character rather as you know many fighting units that I can now uh, write about so that was that was how it got started but then as I revisited the story later on and that story would come to be to become the gatekeeper I realized that there were also other symbolic um, elements and also other symbolic significances that has been um, attributed to and that is represented by this Medusa figure. And that was when I started to, to think about, okay, um, what else can she represent? Who else can she become? And it took a while before Rhea actually even, even um, came to, to be, uh, before she even came into being before she became this full-fledged character mm -hmm. that, that I explored. So I think what drew me to, to that figure is really, you know, first in, um, the, the, the element where she's this swashbuckling, where she represents uh, the swashbuckling princess that I, I would like <laughs> my romances to, to, to feature. And then at the same time, there's also this other complexities, this much darker complexities mm. that she also, um, that comes with her character, that she mm. comes to represent, you know, that, that is attributed to, to her and her story. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, because I was interested that, you, you know, the Medusa's often been seen as a symbol of kind of female rage and fury. Um, and I know that you've talked about the fact that you were a very angry 
little girl. Um, and, and so I'm kind of interested in, in, in Rhea and you and the anger. I mean, my first novel, my protagonist, um, this is set in, my, my novel is set in contemporary um, um, Birmingham, England, but she's full of rage and gets into trouble. So I'm kind of quite interested in this idea of female rage, which, which in your novel, um, we see the ways in which that absolutely is, constrains Rhea's life. Um, um, because she has this enormous power. So did you think about that? I mean, tell me a little bit about how the anger that you felt as a child and the anger that Rhea has, um, you know, how how they are driving forces in the novel. When I was a child, I didn't even think that I was angry. I do come from a pretty strict household. So, you know, outward shows of anger and so on are are not encouraged. Um, Sometimes I even punished in in my household. So, and therefore, I think that is one of the reasons why when I'm in, when I was in kindergarten, that is where I, I lash out. But I didn't. I didn't even know I was lashing out. I just thought I was getting into scuffles, maybe ripping um, a few hits above other people's Barbie dolls and getting into <laughs> trouble for them. But I never saw, like, I, I never saw it as as rage. Yeah, perhaps I didn't understand that it was rage. Um, and we can see this bits of you know childhood rage in Ria when she was just absolutely seething um, mm. at the idea of, of this boy taking an interest in her sister because Ria is very protective of, of Barani um, in a way that she didn't even fully understand uh, at that age. So, and there are also moments when she where she would act out by by throwing the sticks at trees. And so that is the that is the uh, childhood rage that was influenced by my own uh, <laughs> manifestations of, of childhood rage. But when I think of female rage, here's the funny thing: is that when women get angry, so often in society, it is being um, not really is the word here that we're is the word diminished. Or dismissed, mm-hmm. I think that's the word. Mm-hmm. So in our society, in society today, when a woman gets angry, when we think of angry women, that anger is so easily dismissed as, yeah. you know, uh, petty, mm-hmm. as um, being attributed to to our female organs, to Hormones. that time of the month, you yeah. know, being uh, such silly, being mm-hmm. angry about silly things and so on. And also, I, I and that is I feel as and that was and all of this is contrasted with the fact that um, in our cultural imagination, female rage then becomes this massive frightening thing. So we see it in figures like the Medusa, mm. and we see it in horror movies too. Mm. Like so mm. much of horror of, mm. of horror movies, uh, in so many horror movies we see powerful. Um, Ghosts, women who are just angry at something, who has, uh, who who wishes to, you know, to seek revenge, who who is going out there and haunting people with a vengeance, and so on. So yeah, I find it to be really interesting, yeah. and I think yeah. with the gatekeeper, um, 
all of when she when Ria was younger, her rage was seen as this really cute thing, this very silly thing that her sister would be like, stop, stop acting like this, stop being a child. And then it manifests and the older she grows, it becomes this. In fact, she didn't even have to be older. She was 10 when this rage then manifests and in, in that and that absolutely big, terrifying um, action. Um, yeah. in, in that big terrifying act of vengeance and revenge so so yeah that's yeah. that's interesting when i think of female rage i immediately think of of that huge contrast yeah yeah i think that's interesting i was just listening just today and uh, looking at parliament and there was um, a, a, a female mp talking about racism in parliament in the uk yesterday mm. and she was told to calm down and tone down and and that is yeah. a very typical thing, isn't it? But what I like yeah. in yours is 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 the power. So Ria has an enormous power, um, mm. but but is 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 um, is is feared for it, and mm. and has yeah, her life is enormously affected by that. Mm. And I don't want to give anything away, but um, in in the end, I mean, so she uses her power to protect her people. But she, mm. she uses her power both destructively and protectively. But in the end, um, I shouldn't be spoiler alert, spoiler alert. But, you know, you, you, you have made her constrained, uh, you know, that mm. her power is, is, is taken from her. Yeah. And, and is that a comment? I mean, I'm just interesting, you know, it's a fantasy novel, but I was just interested in how much your The Gatekeeper is also a comment on um, contemporary society in Singapore or, or in the world. Uh, yeah, the ending. I think people have commented on the ending where they're just like, how, how dare you? And like, no. And I remember the funny thing is that my partner was reading it and because uh, he used to be a seafarer, so he was out at sea reading it. He was like, no, how? How could you do this? Uh, and he actually went to, to send a, a text over the sea <laughs> just to tell me that. Um, yeah, but the thing is, I've, I always knew that that was the end. Um, that was the ending for, the, for this novel. Because I do... I, um, it is to be. It is actually in line. I feel with the with the mythology, where in mm. the end, with mm. for all that power, um, she still has her her head cut off, mm. and her her visage. You know, her head is still placed on on an aegis, and and is used and is utilized. Mm. So, um, I do see it as a co-opt. You know, that she that the Medusa here in this case, Rhea, is co-opted into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, in some way, and that similarly, with the you know, in a similar fashion, um, in in a similar fashion, the the cooptation is a is a violent act. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, by I mean, larger well, political forces. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I really did like the way in which you didn't. Um, veer away from allowing Rhea to to use um, her power in in you know for good and for you know in some very shocking ways, which which took me by surprise. But and and I I definitely saw parallels between your book and um, Naomi Alderman's The Power, which obviously that's mm. set in the future where women have this enormous physical power. Um, 
and and likewise she also sees it as um that, that it, it, it it's not a, a, a it's not a um a simplistic view of women with power is good <laughs> that's mm. you, you you've got a much more nuanced um sense of a very full sense of the ways in which having this power affects Rhea. um so it's also a love story to some extent, isn't it? So I'm just thinking back to you writing your romances. I mean, it's, it's, it's an unusual love story. But did you think of it as a romance as well? I actually didn't set out to write a romance for, for this story. Of course, the, the earliest iteration of this Medusa story, I mean, a much, much earlier version when I was that was written in the early 2000s when I was much younger. That was a romance. That was a central romance. Um, however, when I, re, when I revised that and reworked that into The Gatekeeper, the romance element was, was definitely played down. And I don't really think of it as a romance if you're thinking of it as a romance between Edric and, and Rhea. Because that Edric's was what I was thinking. Oh, because Edric's behavior is also problematic too. Mm, you know, mm. he he was um, he he had his own problems, and he sees this um, this Medusa living in this underground um, space. You know, as this almost like exotic, otherworldly um, creature that he feels the need to save and and educate. And some of his behaviors are actually pretty predatory as well and so on so yeah, yeah. so yes, there was this that uh, those elements uh yeah i mean it, i i like again the way that so you introduce a male protagonist who is mm. as you say dubious but it's it's a very unusual relationship between the two of them and again you you pervert the course that we would expect that you know so this is no hero coming to rescue the princess um mm. so um you play with things on a lot, a lot of different levels. I think there's a great, you, you use the word complexity a lot. And I think there is a lot of complexity in The Gatekeeper. Um, yeah. I think if there is a love story that I am consciously writing about in the novel, mm -hmm. it would be between Rhea and her sister. Yeah. 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 So it's it's a love story, but it's not the 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 traditional love story that, that we would think of when it comes to, mm -hmm. to romances, mm -hmm. but it's really a, mm -hmm. a sister's, a younger sister's love for her older sister and everything that she does is for Barani. But yeah. of course, not all of the things that she did for Barani are well thought thought out. For example, Rhea is very impulsive as a character. Mm. And I think, yeah, she was difficult to write as a character because she was impulsive. She mm. doesn't have the clearest idea uh, you know the clearest ideas about what she's doing or why she's doing what she's doing so yeah yeah so that well, is definitely I, the love story there between the yeah. sisters well I think it's a wonderful book it's a it's 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 a challenging but also a, a, a you know a great read so I thoroughly encourage um, our listeners to, to to go out and get the gatekeeper so um you you won the um the the epic Epigram Books Fiction Prize um, mm. with The Gatekeeper. And I just wondered um, how much that had sort of changed your life and how much winning, and it was shortlisted for some major prizes as well. Um, so, so how did that affect your life as a writer, the, the prominence? And, and do you think that literary 
prizes play an important role um, in in developing uh, talent? I think the way it changed my life is it's less quiet <laughs> than before, and I have to now get. I mean, like I've always been a bit socially anxious as well, and now you know, winning, uh, having won the prize, having the book published, that means nowadays that level of engagement that I have to get used to, and it's still getting used to. Um, so that's one, and I. However, it does open doors for me. It it did open doors. It did open doors for me when it comes to um, the literary world um, and figures within the literary world. I get to meet various writers, and and I get to to have like some of the most illuminating conversations um, with brilliant people because of of the gatekeeper. Um, and however, yeah, definitely, it's a lot less. It's a lot less quiet, and it's taking me quite a long time to kind of settle down, and then get on to the next project. Uh, when it comes to, um, with regards to literary prizes, and I think your question was, um, how this, important they yeah. are for 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 a writer, you know, in 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 terms of gaining prominence or gaining access. Um, do you mm. think that they that's useful? It is useful for me. Um, mm -hmm. However, one thing about literary prizes is is that I don't. It does definitely. It definitely encourages writing. I think one thing about the Epigram Fiction Prize is that it it got people to to go out there, put pen to paper, or to go to to their computers and, and start writing the stories that's in them uh, this whole time. And to write the stories that they really want to write, so I think it's really important to um, to to get people start uh, started when it comes to to their writing. And at the same time, it is it also helps to to highlight the the kinds of writing that we have um, that we have in Singapore, for example, in uh, in a country and in a region. Mm. So those are definitely some of the things. Uh, those are definitely ways in which literary prizes, uh, literary prizes are, are helpful, are beneficial. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, however, I would also, uh, I also believe that the writing that comes out, that, that is published outside of literary prizes that may not have gotten literary prizes, for example, uh, are no less you know, mm -hmm. are, are mm -hmm. no less wonderful, are no less important. So I think yeah. literary prizes does help to, to highlight the works that are out there, that does help to, to you know, encourage and help to, to build and revitalize or vitalize a, um, a, a reading and writing community. And at the, but then at the same time, it, there are also writings outside of the literary mm -hmm. prizes that we should also never, never forget. Yeah. But definitely, right, literary prizes are are helpful yes. and beneficial in its own ways. Yeah. yeah. And is the is the literature scene? I mean, in Singapore, is is the publishing and literary scene? Is it is it vibrant and and active? I feel. I feel that it is. Yeah, it is vibrant and active. Um, I'm not too sure if it's because now I'm a lot more aware of the scene. Um, or, but then I, 
but then the way I understand it is that in the recent decade, more and more novels uh, are coming out, more and more works uh, are coming out, and they are uh, wonderful works of non-fiction as well as fiction. So um, it is active, it is definitely active, and I it's wonderful to see the stories that are coming out of it and the range of stories that are coming out um, are, that are coming out of the scene as well. Huh. So, yeah. I mean, apart from yourself, is there, are there any other Singapore writers at, at the moment that you think we should really be looking out for? And, and, and um, here's your chance to plug somebody that you think we should go out and read. Uh, I, I can't just plug one out. There are, just, <laughs> there are so many. But I think if um, there are, if, okay, if I have to just plug one author, or what, I can't plug just one author, that would be too hard. Um, but maybe one work I feel we should, that we should all go out to read mm-hmm. now is actually the call and response anthologies. I find they are an anthology, These the call and response anthologies, there are two anthologies now. Mm-hmm. They feature Singaporean writers alongside migrant writers. Wow. And, the thing is that in Singapore, we do have a growing migrant community. Mm-hmm. And um, and lately, I think especially with the, with the pandemic, um, the, the concerns and the issues that are faced by the migrant community when it comes to unfair work practices, for example, mm-hmm. prejudice and discrimination, these are all starting to, to come to light. And mm-hmm. people are starting to discuss it more openly and more actively. And I think these anthologies are wonderful because they feature the, um, not just Singaporean, but also the migrant uh, writers as well, their experiences. And I, and I feel that it just show, it, it does give like a really good range of, of writing in Singapore, yeah. Yeah, of local writing in Singapore and all the stories that constitute it, I think, yeah, go for yeah. the call and response anthologies one and two. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a great way for us to get a, a, a kind of a, an overview on of writing or, or, or a taster of writing um, of thing. So you're now... Although, yeah. Um, however, of course, I, I would also have to encourage people to check out the, um, the books that are coming out by, that are put out by Epigram, Fiction Prize by the African yes. Fiction Prizes. I think um, there is like a really nice lineup that is coming out. Yeah, I'm actually uh, really excited for um, the formidable Miss Cassidy by mm-hmm. Mei Han Bui. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so oh, I would plug that for now and oh. various others. Just look at the range. <laughs> That sounds great. Yeah. Thank you. Now you're um, the uh, writer in residence virtual, so you're not actually mm. here at the Writers Centre um, in Norwich, but you are um, a, a writer in residence with her virtually. So what what are you hoping to get out of this exchange, um, and and how are you finding it so far? I think um, the virtual residency is definitely really interesting. I am in a way because I'm so. Um, I'm so comfortable being a homebody. You know, being at home is, is nice. And what I'm hoping to get out of it, and what I have actually gotten out of it, is being able to to see how my writing fits in a much larger uh, 
literary setting. I think for mm-hmm. the longest time, I do feel as if I write of home a lot. Mm-hmm. I write of issues to do with my home and community a lot, because those are the stories that I really want to tell. But then I also feel as if um, these stories are like how do they you know how do they fit with a much larger in a much larger literary setting, and so and so it's been wonderful to see, um, for example, talking to you uh, right now, and also to to working on my project within the scope of the residency. It's really mm-hmm. wonderful to to then see that yes, the writing has a space, and I would also like to to. Um, see how and to keep thinking about how I can hold space for other writers mm. as well, mm. especially from the communities that that I care about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's been really fascinating talking to you and to feel just so much in common with somebody in the other side, you know, in an island in the other side of the world. But um, mm. and, and thank you so much for describing so vividly the, the community in which you have grown up and, and live because that really helps bring it alive to me, um, as, as although I, and I because the gatekeeper obviously is not set in Singapore, but I feel as if it mm. does tell me somehow a little about Singapore. <laughs> would, would that be true to say that that, that that in some senses you are writing about Singapore, even though it's Def- Manticura? Definitely. I think that is a lot of the, for example, the, the political systems, the concepts, um, for um, experiences of racism, discrimination, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the sort of microaggressions that you see in the novel how do stem from very real you know, experiences and um, observations and so on. And in fact, a lot of the, some of the settings are also very familiar settings if you are Singaporean. Like, for example, um, the scene where Edric is in that, shopping district mm-hmm. that's pretty much our shopping district in <laughs> Singapore all bright and you know uh, luminescent and the um, the quarry in which mm-hmm. uh, Ria and Barani lived mm. um, in the underground community yeah. that is based on the quarries that we do have in Singapore uh, when I was describing Nell Root, uh, mm-hmm. as you can see in mm-hmm. the, the short bit that I read earlier I was thinking of the favelas um, mm. I think in Brazil, the favelas mm-hmm. in Brazil, mm-hmm. and um, the villages in Singapore. At least based on what my mom, based on my mom's descriptions, they are not like that. However, in the city centres, such as in all in all Singapore, the city centres where um, where much of the commercial activities are taking place, people do squat um, mm. in you know in, in the shop houses. And living conditions are not always the best, and people do uh, come to to build, mm. you know, little spaces and so on for themselves. But um, it made me think. I, I was in South Africa before the um, pandemic struck, mm. and on the outskirts of most of the cities, there are these um, roughly built communities. That 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 appear almost overnight, and that have that same as your description, that same kind of made out of anything quality. Finally, just uh, I think we're kind of coming towards the end of our, of our time here. So um, I, I did 
I would I'd like to say thank you very much for talking about your writing. I would have loved to have learned a little bit more about your um, writing process, but maybe we'll have to do another one to get to, 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 to the secrets of how you go about writing. But thank you so much. Um, and I can highly recommend everybody The Gatekeeper. Um, it's a wonderful book. And I hope that the um, residency here um, continues to, to, to stimulate you and your project goes well. Um, just one last thing, uh, new book coming out. Where, where, what's your project now and, and, and when can we see it? Uh, right now, of course, for the residency, I have to finish the story that I set out. I'm actually excited for that uh, for that story. It turned out that it's going to be a, a very funny, dark comedy of, of a woman trying to, to run away from her demons and her demons going on an adventure to find her. <laughs> so uh, so that's actually really exciting and I'm really excited for that. That Hopefully sounds that great. will come up soon. Um, with regards to a new novel, yes, I am working on a new novel. I have about three chapters that I have that I and I've been rewriting and rewriting again. Yeah. So it is um as much as people are asking like when is any kind of continuation to the gatekeeper coming out? Unfortunately that's not gonna be anytime soon. <laughs> so um however I am working on a on a new novel and the only thing I can say about that novel right now, it's about, um, it's going to be set in Singapore, but a post-apocalyptic one. Wow. Yeah. And it's, oh. it features a, a girl, a cat, and this extraterrestrial being that is just trying to, to collect soil samples, but now has to, to help save this help this young girl in her in her quest to look for a safe settlement so that's wow. as far as it is at right now but of course there's going to be drama and more complexities i'm sure sounds fascinating and i wish you all the best with finishing it and i look forward to reading it in the hopefully not too distant future thank you ever so much nirali it's been brilliant talking to you thank you and hopefully the work will be will be out in good time but I work very slowly so <laughs> yeah thank you so much and it's been wonderful talking to you thank you for listening and many thanks to Noalia and Sally Ann if you have questions about this podcast or anything else we do you can get in touch with us basically anywhere you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre we of course have a Facebook page and our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk is where you can join our Discord community, sign up to our newsletter and find out about everything else we're doing. Please do rate, review and subscribe or follow the podcast as it does help other people, other writers to find what we're doing. The National Centre for Writing is a non-profit organisation and we rely on your support to help us continue our work helping writers at all stages of their careers. If you head over to the website and click on the Support Us tab, you can find out more about how you can do just that. Thanks again, keep writing, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.